Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually... Um, Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Like Vatican City, London's inner city is also a privately owned corporation or city-state located right smack in the heart of Greater London. It became a sovereign state in 1694 when King William III of Orange privatized and turned the Bank of England over to the bankers. By 1812, Nathan Rothschild crashed the English stock market and scammed control of the Bank of England. Today, the city-state of London is the world's financial power center and the wealthiest square mile on the face of the earth. It houses the Rothschild-controlled Bank of England, Lloyds of London, the London Stock Exchange, all British banks, the branch offices of 385 foreign banks, and 70 U.S. banks. It has its own courts, its own laws, its own flag, and its own police force. It's not part of Greater London or England or the British Commonwealth and pays no taxes. The city-state of London houses Fleet Street's newspaper and publishing monopolies. It is also the headquarters for worldwide English Freemasonry and headquarters for the worldwide money cartel known as the Crown. Contrary to popular belief, the Crown is not the royal family or the British monarch. The Crown is the private corporate city-state of London. It has a council of 12 members who rule the corporation under a mayor called the Lord Mayor. The Lord Mayor and his 12-member council serve as proxies or representatives who sit in for 13 of the world's wealthiest, most powerful banking families. This ring of 13 ruling families includes the Rothschild family, the Warburg family, the Oppenheimer family, and the Schiff family. These families and their descendants run the Crown Corporation of London. The Crown Corporation holds the title to worldwide Crown land in Crown colonies like Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. The British Parliament and the British Prime Minister serve as a public front for the hidden power of these ruling crown families. Clement Attlee was the Prime Minister of the UK from 1945 
1951, he's on record as saying, over and over again, we have seen that there is in this country another power than that which has its seat at Westminster. The City of London, a convenient term for a collection of financial interests, is able to assert itself against the government of the country. Those who control money can pursue a policy at home and abroad contrary to that which has been decided by the people. Greetings, oddities, and welcome to another oddcast featuring your odd man out. Thank you for taking the time to hang out with me. I want to wish you a very happy 2023, and thank you for hanging in with me. It's been a crazy couple of years, and I expect 2023 to also be crazy, but at least we have each other, right? And this week, I want to look into something that kind of has been in the works for a long time, and many of you will be somewhat familiar with it, but I want to go a little bit deeper and see if we can understand it a little bit better. Ever since I got into conspiracies and alt-media, I've heard that there were three sovereign cities that ruled the world. You know what I'm talking about, right? Vatican City, Washington, D.C., and of course, London, England. What we're going to be looking at today is London, England, and in particular, the corporation that is the city of London. They call it the Square Mile, and it's actually different than Greater London. It's only a small square mile Yet, it is home to many, many banks, and really, you could say it's one of the financial hubs of the world, even more important than New York City, and you don't hear about this very often. There's some very unique things that make up the city of London, and that's what this episode's going to be about, and I hope that once we're done, you'll have some fun things to talk about, and I think it'll pull some more of the pieces of the puzzle together for you, kind of helping you to understand maybe why things are the way they are. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and jump right into the show and look at this hidden history. So let's get deep down that rabbit hole far beyond the mainstream. In the Financial Times, it has an article that we're going to look at here, The City of London's Strange History. The City of London is known for its invisible earnings as a hub of financial services such as insurance, commodities trading, and investment. What is less well known is that the City of London Corporation is the oldest continuous democratic commune in the world. 2,000 years of self-government is quite an achievement. For no one to really notice is perhaps the greatest achievement of all. Invisible earnings, invisible power. The law and practice of the Romans, the city's founders, became the basis of London's institutions and political language. The status of citizen has been retained ever since. The city also adopted, through its democratic ward system and court hustings, many aspects of Saxon civic practice. The folk moot, for example, was a regular meeting of all citizens at St. Paul's Cross, called by the ringing of the bells where matters of concern would be discussed and voted upon. This formed the basis of the Corporation of London and founded its position in the ancient Constitution. While laying ways to the rest of the country, William the Conqueror came friendly to London, recognized the liberties of its citizens, and pledged to defend their freedoms and fortify the city against barbarian attack. London's special status within the Constitution was upheld by a stream of charters and privileges that protected the City of London from external interference. Think about the 
history that the city of London has seen over the decades. In the Magna Carta, the 1215 Charter of Rights between King John and the Barons, not only are the rights of the whole body of citizens respected, but the mayor of London was designated as one of the two guarantors charged with ensuring that the crown kept its side of the bargain. Corporation of London, which announced itself as a commune in 1191, was recognized as one of the great institutions of the ancient constitution, with a place only one step below the sovereign. The combination of wealth, functioning democratic and legal institutions, and an effective system of civic militias meant the crown could never subordinate the city of London to its rule. London taxed itself, judged itself, and governed itself. In this way, the most cosmopolitan city in England, carved out of a forest by the Romans, became the custodian of the ancient liberties of the English people and the champion of common law against the state encroachment. From the 1580s, London became home to 10,000 internal refugees a year, most displaced by the enclosure in the North and Midlands. By 1625, it had 400,000 inhabitants, 20 times more than any other English city. In 1632, the Crown asked the corporation to extend its privileges and institutions to the new areas of London, but the corporation refused. Instead of expanding and extending its democratic practices and legal protections to the new inhabitants living without civic status in the suburbs of Westminster, Clerkenwell, Whitechapel, and Southwark, the City of London turned its back on London as a city. The Great Refusal is what it became known, and it was in 1637 that it defined the modern history of London. Instead of seeking to integrate the new arrivals, the corporation put large resources into transferring its unwanted excess population to the Ulster Plantation and the Corporation of Londonderry, which were established for that purpose. The bowler hats and the umbrellas of the Orange Orders derived from their sponsorship by the Corporation of London. You guys may have heard of the Orange Order. The Stuarts made two serious attempts at London reform. One led to the execution of the king, the other an attempt by Charles II to establish that the monarchy was the source of the corporation's authority, led to the Stuarts' replacement by William and Mary, whose second charter in 1690 leaves no doubt as to who were the greatest beneficiaries of the glorious revolution. It declared that the mayor, commonality, and the citizens of London shall forever hereafter remain, continue, and be, and prescribe to be, a body politic, and re facto at no mine, and shall have and enjoy all their rights, gifts, charters, grants, liberties, privileges, franchises, customs, usages, constitutions, prescriptions, immunities, markets, duties, tolls, lands, tenements, estates, and hereditaments whatsoever. The 18th century was a glorious epoch for the city and its corporation. Conflict, however, remained between the corporation and the crown, and the two different concepts of state and empire developed. One based on free trade and championed by the corporation, the other based on prerogative rule and the sovereignty of the crown. The city of London actually supported George Washington and provided funds and men for the cause. 
The citizens of London reminded the king to the point of treason that it was they and not he who had won the civil war. I bet you never heard that, have you? Even as Parliament displaced the crown as the fundamental unit of sovereignty and democracy displaced the divine right of kings as the principle of legitimacy, the state still refused to subordinate the Corporation of London to national laws and practices. Its assets and its ancient privileges remained untouched. The city survived each wave of Victorian municipal reform. The corporation's assets, its property inventory, and financial portfolio remain unpublished. London as a whole was not to have city status. The county council was ruled from county hall. The same could be said for today's Greater London Authority. New Labour might have given the Bank of England its independence, but its zeal for modernization did not extend to the city of London. In September 2008, we glimpsed for a moment the consequences of having a financial sector prone to volatility and vice as the driver of our national economy. Some £1.6 trillion was transferred to the banks so that the economy could continue to function. The city of London, our most ancient democratic city, had become a lobbyist for globalized capital, and there was no accountability. Or rather, we learned that accountability was too important to be left to accountants. In finishing, the moral of the story is that what we learned in politics is true for the economy, that unless the executive was held to account, there would be vice, abuse, and unconstrained self-interest. The City of London Corporation needs to be held to account by the citizens of London and its inheritance made available for the good of the city. Maybe it's time after 2,000 years for all of London to become a city and for the Guildhall to be its parliament and for there to be one mayor of a united city who lives in Mansion House. So that gives you kind of an idea of how the City of London was founded and why it is actually outside of Greater London. It is its own sovereign city, and it has its own mayor, it has its own government, it has its own police force, and we're going to look deeper into how all that is decided upon year by year. The City of London Municipal Corporation in Borough, London, England, sometimes called the Square Mile, is one of the 33 boroughs that make up the large metropolis of Greater London. The borough lies on the north bank of the Thames River between the Temple Bar Memorial Pillar, commemorating the old Temple Bar Gate, and the base of Tower Hill. The city corporation is Britain's oldest local government. It has the status of a county with the powers that exceed those of London's 32 other boroughs, notably the control of its own police force. The city, as it is known, is only a component, relatively small in area, of the larger urban area known as London. Its area corresponds closely to that of the ancient city from which modern London has grown. The city belongs geographically to the historic county of Middlesex, but its special status and privileges gave it autonomy from that county for most of its history. That's from the Encyclopedia Britannica. The city has a motto in Latin, on its crest. The motto says, Domine dirige nos, which translates as a master direct us. It appears to have been adopted in the 17th century, as the earliest record of it is in 1633. A banner of the arms, the design on the shield, is flown as the flag of the city. 
flag has two red dragons on it, one on either side, and it again has that crest with the white shield, the red cross, and the red sword going back to the Templars. There are two dragons that you see when you enter the gates of the city. There's actually 14 dragon statues guarding the city of London, the small square mile, and there's many other dragons depicted on artwork in buildings, some inside and some on the outside structures. The official explanation of the aforementioned crest with the two dragons, the white shield with the red cross and sword, allegedly pay homage to a fictional character, St. George, who was depicted in a story saving a princess from a dragon. St. George was based upon a Templar knight and is often depicted as a Templar in arms on a stallion. Of course, we know that the Templars had a white flag with a red cross. Now, I've listed several videos that have some fantastic hidden symbolism that is in the square mile on the buildings and whatnot, and you have to watch. I mean, it's just fantastic stuff. Very reminiscent of some of the things in Washington, D.C., but even more intricate. The city of London is a unique place. It's the city in a city, in a country, in a country, that runs its government with perhaps the most complicated elections in the world, involving medieval guilds, modern corporations, mandatory titles, and fancy hats, all of which are connected in this horrifying org chart. Why so complicated? Though the new skyscrapers might make you think the city of London is relatively young, it's actually the oldest continuous government on the island of Great Britain. The city of London predates the empire that Victoria ruled, the kingdoms and united, and the Magna Carta that John reluctantly signed. While the London which surrounds the city only got to electing its first mayor in 2000, the list of mayors who've governed the city of London is almost 700 people long, going back more than a thousand years. The city of London's government is so old that there's no surviving record of exactly when it was born. There are only documents like the Magna Carta which mention the pre-existing powers the city of London already had at that point in time. So while a government like the United States is officially gets its power from the people, and Parliament gets its power from the Crown, which in turn gets it from God, the City of London gets its power from time immemorial, meaning that the city is so old it just is. And that age brings with it unusual and complicated traditions. The most notable of these, perhaps, is that in City of London elections, companies get votes. Quite a lot, actually. About three-fourths of the votes cast in city elections are from companies, with the remaining one-fourth from residents. The way it works is that the bigger a company is, the more votes it gets from the City of London. The companies then give their votes to select employees who work but do not live within the city, and it's these employees who do the actual voting at election time. The result is that the Common Council, the bureaucratic beating heart of the City of London, has about 20 common councillors elected by residents of the city, and about 80 elected by companies of the city. The reasoning behind this unusual tradition is that for every one person who lives in the City of London, 43 people commute in every day. In total, that's 300,000 commuters using city services and whose employment depends on the City of London being business friendly. The man in charge of the Common Council and who heads the city's government is the Right Honourable the Lord Mayor of London. Now, suppose you want to be Lord Mayor. Surely, just as in that other London, all you'll need to do is A, be a British Commonwealth or EU citizen who has B, lived in the city for a year and who C, wins the election, right? 
No, in the city of London, that's not nearly enough. Ready for the qualifications list? Before you can even run for Lord Mayor, you need to have been a sheriff of the city of London. But before you can be sheriff, you need to be an alderman. What's an alderman? Well, the city of London is divided into 25 wards, and each ward elects one alderman to represent it on the Court of Aldermen, a subsection of the Common Council. But before you can run for alderman, you need to gain freeman status. And who gives out freeman status? Why, none other than the very Court of Aldermen you're trying to get elected to, which might just seem like a conflict of interest. Luckily, there is another way to get freeman status. Join one of the city's guilds. Sadly, they aren't called guilds, they're called livery companies, a name which is both more boring and less descriptive, but the remnants of medieval guilds, many of them are, and within the city there are 108 of them to choose from, including, but not limited to, the apothecaries, the fishmongers, the masons, the mercers, the scientific instrument makers, the bankers, the shipwrights, the wheelwrights, the butchers, the bakers, two different candlestick makers, and the most exciting of all, the chartered accountants. Many of these guilds, like the Fletchers, have become charities, but some are still active, such as the goldsmiths who test the quality of British coinage, and the hackney carriage drivers who license taxi drivers. To join one of these guilds, you'll either need to meet the professional requirements, or for the charities like the haberdashers, you'll need the approval of two existing members. If you meet none of the livery company's membership requirements, but you think you'll be a clever clogs and start your own livery company and grant yourself freeman status, tough luck, because new livery companies need to be approved by, you guessed it, the Court of Aldermen. But let's assume one way or another you get the official freeman status certificate. Now you can finally run for alderman of a ward, after the Lord Chancellor's Advisory Committee also approves of you. But that small barrier passed, you can win election as alderman in either one of the four wards where people live or the 21 wards where companies live. Once on the Court of Aldermen, to continue your path to the mayor's office in Guildhall, you must now be elected as sheriff. But this time, it's the members of the livery companies who pick the sheriffs. So if the livery company members elect you as sheriff after you have successfully completed your term, then you can finally run for mayor. But surprisingly, residents of the city of London don't vote for the mayor. Our old friends on the Court of Aldermen do. So in summary, once you get your freeman status from either the Court of Aldermen or the livery companies, and after your ward elects you as alderman, and then the livery companies elect you as sheriff, and after your term as sheriff ends, but while you're still on the Court of Aldermen, then you can run for mayor. And assuming the other aldermen select you, you can finally take your place as the Right Honorable the Lord Mayor of London for one year with no salary. And you have to cover your own expenses, which will be quite considerable, as your new job consists mostly of making hundreds of speeches a year around the world promoting city business. But you do get that fancy hat, which just might make it all worthwhile. Author Niall Ferguson writes in his 2011 book, Civilization, The West and the Rest, the city of London was an outback in the 15th century compared to some of the great cities. Then with international trading led by the British East India Company, money flooded in as did people of different nationalities. And we're going to look a little bit more at the government of this small city of London and how it works. But right now, let's look at another interesting connection that goes right from the Templars to modern day. It's well known and even admitted in some circles that Freemasonry is the offspring of the Templars. Freemasonry is actually predominant in the square mile. The leader of the square mile, the leader of the city, if you will, is the Honorable Lord Mayor. He's closely aligned with Freemasonry, and many Lord Mayors have been Masons. As many as 5,000 Freemasons 
march in the yearly parade celebrating the election of the new Lord Mayor. Also, the oldest Masonic Lodge, official lodge, is located right there in the city. Author Stephen Knight wrote two detailed books about the influence of Freemasonry in London. You've probably seen The Brotherhood. He focused especially on the various police forces and how Masonry had created a true good old boy network which allowed numerous criminal acts to go unpunished. Knight explains a little bit about the structure of the government in the city. As darkness closed in on the city of London in the late afternoon of the 16th of February, 1982, a number of influential men converged on the ancient Guild Hall, seat of the city's medieval-style government. They came in taxis, in chauffeur-driven limousines, and on foot. They came from all parts of the city and beyond. Between them, they represented a wide spectrum of wealth and power. Their decisions in the worlds of high finance, the law, industry, international trade and commerce, as well as politics, affected the lives of thousands. Each of the men beneath his outer garments wore a dark lounge suit, and most of them carried small oblong cases, some inscribed in gold leaf with the owner's initials. These cases contained the regalia the men would put on when they reached their destination. The men came from different directions and entered Guildhall by various entrances. Some came across Guildhall Yard and some along the Aldermanbury, some by way of Mason's Avenue. Once inside the hall, each turned his step towards the crypt, which was cardened off so that no intruder could make his way down the stair and report the goings-on to any Gentile. A tiler or outer guard was posted at the door to block the path of any stranger who might slip past the Guildhall commissionaire. At precisely 5.15 p.m., the participants in the drama, which was set to be acted out and gathered in the crypt, which had been transformed into a Masonic temple. The Brethren of Guildhall Lodge, number 3116, took their places. Outgoing worshipful master, Brother Frank Nathaniel Steiner, knocked once with his gavel. The sound echoed around the east crypt with its low vaulted ceiling and clustered pillars of Purbeck marble. The coat of arms of Sir Bernard Whaley Cohen, a member and former worshipful master of the lodge, had pride of place at one of the six intersections of the vaulting because he had been Lord Mayor when the crypt was restored in 1961. Other coats of arms included those of Edward the Confessor, in whose reign the crypt was built, and Queen Elizabeth II. The Guildhall Lodge was consecrated at the Mansion House, which is the official residence of the Lord Mayor of London, on Tuesday, November 14, 1905. Since then, no fewer than 62 Lord Mayors have been Masters of the Lodge, whose members comprises both the elected members of the Corporation of London and its salaried officers. The Worshipful Master of the Lodge, both in 1981-82 and 82-83, was not the Lord Mayor because neither was a Freemason. So Steiner, Common Councilman for Bread Street Ward and Deputy Grand Registrar of the United Grand Lodge, was elected in place of Colonel Sir Ronald Gardner Thorpe in what would have been the natural place of the Lord Mayor, the Right Honorable Sir Christopher Lever, had he been of the Brotherhood. The lodge was opened in the first degree. The ritual dismissal of the entered apprentices was intoned. 
the lodge was opened in the second degree. Among the brethren in the temple were Anthony Stewart Joliffe, alderman and sheriff of the City of London, also director of numerous companies including SAS Catering Limited, Nicohillier International Trading Company Limited, Capital for Industry Limited, Marlboro Property Holdings Developments Limited, and Albany Commercial and Industrial Developments Limited. Joe Leaf, Senior Warden of the Lodge for the current year, has been Vice President of the European League for Economic Cooperation, Honorable Treasurer of Britain and Europe's Residual Fund, and a trustee of the Police Foundation, and he had held many other influential positions. Also in the crypt that night was the Lodge Chaplain, Christopher Selwyn Priestley Rawson, Chairman and Managing Director of Christopher Rawson Limited, an underwriting member of Lloyd's, and an honorary member of the Metal Exchange. As a Freemason of London's grand rank, he wore a collar of garter blue ribbon with narrow edging. I know this is really in detail, but just want you guys to understand how freaking important masonry still is to the city of London. That's why you see so many of the royal family sporting Freemasonry attire. Ancient institutions survive and hold sway in the city of London more than anywhere else in Britain. Although the city is one of the most important financial and business centers in the world, medieval custom and tradition are apparent everywhere. Even the Bank of England, the nationalized central bank, which holds our gold reserves, conducts the government's monetary policy, regulates lending and finances, the national debt, retains its old lady of the Threadneedle Street image, its messengers are waiters wearing pink waistcoats and top hats as they go about their time-honored business. Once a year, the worshipful company of butchers presents the Lord Mayor with a boar's head on a silver platter, exactly as it did in the 14th century. The Port of London's Authority Garden in Seething Lane is leased to the corporation as a public amenity for an annual rent of nosegay, whatever the hell that is. Every October at the Royal Courts of Justice, the corporation's legal officer, the comptroller and city solicitor, pays the Queen's remembrancer a hatchet, a billhook, six horses, and 61 nails, the so-called quits rents, for two of the city's holdings, the Forge in St. Clement Danes and the Moors in Shropshire. The city's institutions are as varied as they are ancient, wrote the late Blake Ehrlich. The five wise men set the world price of bullion in the opulent gold room of N.M. Rothschilds and Sons on St. Swithin's Lane at 10.30 each morning. But before these gentlemen are out of bed, the gentlemen from the Fishmongers Guild, their boots silvered with fish scales, are exercising their immemorial functions down by the river at Billingsgate, London's fish market. On the other side of the city, pre-dawn buyers eye-hook-hung carcasses at Smithfield, the world's largest dressed meat market. Nearby nurses begin to prepare patients for surgery at St. Bartholomew's, or Bart's, London's first hospital, founded in 1123, and the place where, in the 17th century, William Harvey first demonstrated the circulation of the blood. Closer to St. Paul's Cathedral, the vans begin to deliver prisoners whose cases will be heard that day at Old Bailey, as the Central Criminal Court is known, where most of Britain's sensational murder trials have been held. 
These daily occurrences, the mundane modern mingled extricably with the flavor of the Middle Ages, are what lend the city its unique life. Only the sovereign takes precedence over the Lord Mayor within the city's square mile. The Rothschilds have been Freemasons for generations. Even the Prime Minister, even Margaret Thatcher, will walk behind the Mayor in the official processions through the city. The city is not entirely an island in the river of time. It is rather a place where two historical clocks are running, one which for the past thousand years has been going so slowly that its hands have picked up the ceremonial dust of the centuries, of which very little has been lost. The other, which operates with the impeccable efficiency of a quartz crystal, it is the continuing belief in the importance of ancient tradition which is largely responsible for the undying strength of Freemasonry. For Freemasonry underpins all the great and influential institutions of the square mile. According to the confidential statistics from Great Queen Street, there are 1,677 lodges in London. Hundreds of these are in the city. Between the hours of 8 in the morning and 6 at night, when the city's residential population of about 4,000 swells to about 345,000 with the influx of commuters, the square mile has the highest density of Freemasons anywhere in Britain. We're going to read just a little bit more to find out a little bit about this government and how it works here. The Royal Exchange, the Corn Exchange, the Baltic Exchange, the Metal Exchange, the Bank of England, the Merchant Banks, the Insurance Companies, the Mercantile Houses, the Old Bailey, the Inns of Court, the Guild Hall, the Schools and Colleges, the Ancient Markets, all of them have Freemasons in significant positions. Among the institutions with their own lodges are the Baltic Exchange, Baltic Lodge Number 3006, which has its own temple actually in the Exchange in St. Mary's Axe, the Bank of England, Lodge Number 263, and Lloyd's Black Horse in Lombard Street, Number 4155. Like any local authority, and like central government itself, the city corporation is formed of a council of elected representatives, the aldermen, the deputies, and the common council, and of the salaried permanent officers whose job it is to advise the council and execute its decisions. For administrative purposes, the city is divided into 25 wards. Ten of these wards have their own lodges. Five of the six common councilmen, representing Aldersgate Ward, author Brian Wilson, deputy, Hyman Liss, Edwin Stephen Wilson, and Peter George Robert Sales, are all Freemasons. All the main salaried officers of the corporation are Masons. Indeed, it is virtually impossible to reach a high position in Guild Hall without being an active brother, as three senior officers currently serving and two past officers have informed me. The subject of masonry is spoken about openly in interviews for high posts. At the time of this writing, the town clerk, the chamberlain, the city marshal, the hall keeper, and the city solicitor, the city architect, and the city engineer are all members of the Brotherhood. The livery companies, the name derives from the ceremonial dress of members, have developed from the medieval craftsmen's guilds and from religious or social fraternities. Some companies are involved in the education, and some are influential in the operation of their trade. 
There are close links between the guilds and livery companies and the corporation, the City and the Guilds of London Institute. They set up in 1878 to promote education in technical subjects and set examinations. It's a joint adventure here. And the Lord Mayor of London is selected each year from two of the city's 26 aldermen who are nominated by the 15,000 liverymen. To qualify for membership of one of the livery companies, a man must be a freeman of the city, an honor generally awarded by Freemasons to Freemasons. The corporation of the City of London is so strongly Masonic that many connected with it, some Masons included, think of it as virtually an arm of the Grand Lodge. But it must not be forgotten that the city is first and foremost a financial center. And money to a successful financier, Freemason or not, speaks louder than anything. Mammon and serving the Brotherhood, all but a few Freemasons in the city, act upon the Masonic principle enshrined in the fifth paragraph of the Universal Book of Craft Masonry, which declares, Freemasonry distinctly teaches that a man's first duty is to himself. Again, that was Stephen Knight from the Brotherhood. And after that, he really gets into detail about the Freemasons and the different police forces. It's really an interesting read. Both of his books are really interesting. And he's got one also on Jack the Ripper, which he says was probably a Mason, and that his murders had a Masonic influence as far as ritual goes. Now, the Lord Mayor has a man who is called the Remembrancer, who attends Parliament and then reports back to the corporation about the goings-on there in the Parliament. Let's look quickly at some of the livery companies. This is like looking back in time. It's really amazing. The livery companies and the City of London have grown up together. Now, this is from the City of London's official website. They share common goals, and since the earliest beginnings of the city, have both been strong and active in support. The livery companies are integral to the city's governance. Each year, liverymen elect the sheriffs of the City of London, endorse the election of the Lord Mayor, and play a prominent part in major events. So this is just really backing up what Stephen Knight said. Those in guilds can trace their origins back to the 12th century, with the earliest charter still in existence being granted to the Weavers Company in 1155. Those working in the same craft lived and worked near each other, grouping together to regulate competition within their trade and maintain high standards. The early London guilds benefiting their members and customers alike controlling the manufacture and selling of most goods and services in the square mile. As the guilds became more established, many set up their headquarters in large houses or halls, as well as a meeting place. These became the venue for settling trade or domestic disputes. London street names today still bear witness to areas where individual trades gathered and flourished. When some guilds introduced their own distinctive clothing and regalia, or livery, to distinguish their members from those in other guilds, they soon became known as livery companies. The peak period for formation of the guilds was the 14th century, when many received charters or ordinances. In 1515, there were 48 companies, and the Lord Mayor established an order of precedence for them, finally ending many years of dispute. After the 17th century, the livery companies suffered a series of setbacks, with their powers and practices restricted to the square mile, most were unable to compete with cheaper traders springing up outside its boundaries. 
while costly wars and political intrigues saw first Tudor and then Stuart monarchs levying hefty charges on the companies. The Industrial Revolution only added to their problems, yet stimulated the changes that were to save them. Another interesting connection there in this small, square-mile City of London corporation is the Templar Church, the Inner Temple. It is right there in the heart of this small, square-mile city. And, of course, the city is known for its banking, just like when the Templars were there, and they ran their banking empire, their usury empire, right out of the Inner Temple. Now tell me, you see the Templar flag or a crest at the gates of the city that looks very similar to the Templar flag, and you start to wonder what's going on here. Did the Templars ever really disband? Now another interesting connection is, well, Switzerland was one of the other main hubs for the Templars, and again, they were known for their banking, just like Switzerland is still known for its banking today, and there also lies the Bank for International Settlements, and if any of you guys haven't heard my episode on the BIS, it was created under a treaty which gives it special privileges, kind of like the, well, the City Corporation of London. It doesn't have to go by certain regulations and rules. Now, the BIS was supposedly created to oversee Germany, paying back reparations to other countries after the war, but it became something entirely different. Now, it is the bank for the central banks, and it's very, very powerful and influential. It's worked with the Soviets, it's worked with the Nazis, it's worked with America, England, you name it. And so you see there another Templar hub, which is still a huge banking hub. And you start to look over this stuff, and you begin to wonder, how can people deny that there's this Templar influence still there today? Now, we've mentioned the Templars several times, and of course, the Freemasons connected to the Templars. So the International Bar Association is now located in the Temple Church where the Templar headquarters was located back in the day. The Honorable Society of the Inner Temple, commonly known as the Inner Temple, is one of the four ends of court and is a professional association for barristers and judges to be called to the bar and practice as a barrister in England and Wales. A person must belong to one of these inns. It is located in the wider Temple area, near the Royal Courts of Justice and within the City of London. Now on the KnightsTemplarOrder.org, there is an article here and it has some quotes and it's titled, Templar Magna Carta and the Rule of Law, Knights Templar Lawgivers of the First Civil Rights Charter. We'll read a little bit of this. Less than 50 years ago, before the Magna Carta, the basis for English common law itself was initially developed by substantial legal reforms implemented by King Henry II of the Templar dynastic house of Anjou. These sweeping reforms of the royal court system and its legal frameworks, backed by Knights Templar support, resulted in the very foundations of the common law system of jurisprudence. When King Richard the Lionheart died in 1199 AD, he was succeeded by his brother King John, who imposed excessive taxation on the English nobility and confiscated and sold property of the Roman Catholic Church. These and other arbitrary abuses of power were mostly driven by the need to pay for failed foreign wars. Some things never change. By 1214, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton, 
called on the nobles to demand a charter of liberties from the King of England. This resulted in the first time in history that a statutory law was imposed upon a monarch backed by armed force, causing the landmarked Magna Carta to be enacted in 1215 A.D. Written in Roman Latin, its full title was Magna Carta Libertatum, literally the Great Charter of Liberties. Historians generally identify the Magna Carta as an Angevin charter, specifically meaning of the royal house of Anjou, the line of titled counts of Anjou dating back to 870 A.D. The 13th century nobles of the house of Anjou, who were involved in creating the Magna Carta, dynastically descended directly from Count Fulk of Anjou, king of Jerusalem. King Fulk was one of the first noble patrons, backing the first of the two grand masters of the Templar order since its establishment in 1118 A.D., and essentially served as the 10th founding knights Templar in 1120 A.D. So no doubt there's some interesting history there, but it has a quote. It says, Leading justice scholars in the system of the U.K. are well aware that the Temple Church was the cradle of common law. And again, the Temple Church was the headquarters there in the Corporation City of London of the Templars. You may have heard of conspiracies about the Bar Association. Now, this is from a website called wakeupworld.com. The Crown Temple, the article is by Rule of Mystery Babylon, called the Templars of the Crown. This also mentions America, and it gets into some conspiratorial territory, but I think it's worth checking out. Quote, The government and legal system of the United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, and of course Britain, is totally controlled by the Crown. I have also stated that the British monarch is not the Crown. The Crown is the inner city of London, which is an independent state in London belonging to the Vatican system. It is a banking cartel which has a massive system around and beneath which hides its true power. The city is in fact the Knights Templar Church, also known as the Crown Temple or Crown Templar, and is located between Fleet Street and the Victoria Embankment. The temple grounds are also home to the Crown offices at Crown Office Row. The Crown Temple controls the global legal system, including those in the United States, Canada, Australia, and much more. This is because all bar associations are franchises of the Crown, and all bar attorneys and barristers throughout the world pledge a solemn oath to the Temple, even though many may not be aware that this is what they are doing. Bar associations, licensed solicitors and barristers, must keep their oath, pledge, and terms of allegiance to the Crown Temple if they are to be called to the bar and work in the legal profession. The ruling monarch is also subordinate to the Crown Temple. This has been so since the reign of King John in the 13th century, when royal sovereignty was transferred to the Crown Temple and through this to the Roman Church. King John from 1167 to 1216 is the key to this deception. Now, I'm not saying this is correct. I just want you to be aware of the more conspiratorial part of this, and especially having to do with the Bar Association and the International Bar Association. The present queen, or the late queen of England now, is not the crown, as we have all been led to believe. Rather, it is the bankers and attorneys who are the actual crown or crown temple. 
The monarch aristocrats of England have not been ruling sovereigns since the reign of King John, circa 1215. All royal sovereignty of the old British crown since that time has passed to the crown temple and chancery. The USA is not a free and sovereign nation that our federal government tells us it is. If this were true, we would not be dictated to by the crown temple through its bankers and attorneys. The USA is controlled and manipulated by this private foreign power, and our unlawful federal U.S. government is their pawnbroker. The bankers and bar attorneys in the USA are a franchise in an oath and allegiance to the Crownet Chancery, the Crown Temple Church, and its chancel located at Chancery Lane, a manipulative body of elite bankers and attorneys from the independent city of London who violate the law in America by imposing fraudulent, legal, but totally unlawful contracts on the American people. I won't go into that, but let's finish this up here. The banks rule the temple church, and the attorneys carry out their orders by controlling their victim's judiciary. The legal system, or judiciary of the United States, is controlled by the Crown Temple from the independent and sovereign city of London. The private Federal Reserve System, which issues fiat U.S. Federal Reserve notes, is financially owned and controlled by the Crown from Switzerland, the home and legal origin for the charters of the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Trade Organization, and most importantly, the Bank for International Settlements. Even Hitler respected his crown bankers by not bombing Switzerland. The Bank of International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, is a Vatican bank, and it controls all the central banks of the G7 nations. He who controls the gold rules the world finish it up here. The people who comprise the citizenry of the United States are recognized only within natural and common law, as is already established by God's law. Only a state citizen can be a party to an action within a state court. A common state citizen cannot be recognized in that court because he doesn't legally exist in crown chancery courts. In order to be recognized in their state courts, the common man must be converted to that of a corporate or legal entity a legal fiction. Now you know why they create such an entity using all capital letters within the birth certificates issued by the states. They convert the common lawful man of God into a fictional legal entity subject to administration by state rules, orders, and codes. There is no law within any rule or code. Of course, rules, codes, etc. do not apply to the lawful common man of the Lord of Lords, so the man with inherent godly law and rights must be converted into a legal person of fictional status, another legal term, in order for their legal but completely unlawful state judiciary chancery courts to have authority over them. And that will be probably another subject for a different day that we'll look deeper into, but I thought you know, people can say this is all just a conspiracy, this whole show, but it's, I think, very hard to refute that the City of London Corporation does exist. You can see pictures of the crest that actually says Corporation of London. Now, not only is the Corporation City of London one of the most important, if not the most important cities for finance in the entire world, it is a tax haven and an overseer of other British-controlled tax havens like the Cayman Islands, Jersey, Guernsey, the Isle of Man, Gibraltar, and Bermuda. Being a sovereign city with 
separate laws and regulations allows all these banks to come into this small mile and be a place where people can put their money and there's not much of a way to trace it. And speaking of how they don't have to abide by regular rules and laws because they were created so long ago and they are a sovereign city, I see here on cityam.com. The City of London set for exemption from new global tax rules. The City of London is set to win an exemption from a new global tax proposal for taxing multinational companies in a boon for the square mile's largest banks. The Financial Times reported that Britain's pitch for a carve-out for its financial services sector has been accepted in the ongoing talks at the OECD in Paris. This was from 2021. It goes on to say, Many major banks are headquartered in the city, but generate more than half of their income elsewhere. HSBC, for example, generates more than half of its income from China, but is the UK's biggest bank by revenue. Earlier this month, it was reported that the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, would use the Paris talks to push for a carve-out for the square mile. Looking here at just a few of the banks, I lost count at 70-some-odd banks there in London. Standard Chartered Bank, Lloyd's, China Trust, Fitch Ratings, Anglo-Romanian Bank, Deutsche Hypo, NatWest, Banco Populaire di Verona, E. Novara, Bremer Landesbank, the Bank of Italy, Abbey Bank, Mitsubishi Trust and Banking Corporation, Reserve Bank of Australia, FBS Bank, National Financiera SNC, Goldman Sachs International, another NatWest Bank, UBS Capital, Singer and Friedlander, United Mizrahi Bank, Barclays Global Investors, Swede Bank, Macquarie Bank, Erst Bank, HBOS Treasury Services PLC, Ghana International Bank PLC, Banco National Ultramarino, another NatWest. We could go on and on and on and on. It's unfreaking believable. And I've put this link in my show notes if you want to just browse through here. There's another Barclays Bank, uh, Bank of Bermuda, Overseas Chinese Banking Corporation. Another NatWest, ABC IT Services, Royal Bank of Canada. So you quickly realize that this area is overpopulated with these financiers. Now, one of the interesting ways that they're able to hide all this money is through these trusts. And there's not any regulations as far as that goes in the London Corporation as far as having to report how much money is in these trusts, who is behind the trusts. We go back to thinking about Cecil Rhodes and the Rhodes Trust and the Rhodes Scholarships, and there's just various ones, the Schwartzman Scholarships. And we look at the Russell Trust from the Skull and Bone Society and all these trusts that these different very elite senior fraternities have. But, you know, they got this idea long ago from these Brits who had figured out how to do this the right way. And so now... You know, they've got such a racket going on that it is hard to even knock a dent in it. At the demise of empire, the Bank of England used this regulatory authority to help attract the world's banks to London. In 1972, 
the Bank of England issued a license to the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, which set up its head office in London. Within 10 years, BCCI grew into the seventh largest bank in the world. 10 years later, BCCI was bankrupt. The deputy director of the CIA, Richard Kerr, said late today that the CIA did use BCCI to support CIA activities overseas. But BCCI had not just collaborated with the world's intelligence services. It had also engaged in extensive financial fraud, money laundering, and terrorist financing. BCCI constituted international global crime of a level that boggles the mind. BCCI was financing terrorism. The Bank of England knew it, says the report, but instead of supervising it properly, it tried to prevent the bank's collapse. I am saying very directly that the Bank of England had sufficient information in front of it to close BCCI 15 months earlier than it did. Millions of depositors were hurt in that process. Numerous whistleblowers from BCCI had contacted the Bank of England, yet the Bank of England did nothing. The Bank of England had plenty of time to intervene and investigate, but it did not do so because the tradition at that time, which still survives, is that while actually, you know, you have to just kind of send hints and talk over lunch tables with the chaps regulating other chaps, and all would be well. Robin Lee Pemberton, the governor of the Bank of England at the time of the collapse of BCCI, commented, the present system of supervision has served the community well. If we closed down a bank every time we found an incidence of fraud, you would have rather fewer banks than we do at the moment. London was a place for banks to engage in business that was not allowed elsewhere, where senior bankers did not have to worry about the consequences of their actions. This is one of the reasons why today there are more banks in London than in any other financial centre. In Britain, nobody goes to jail. No bankers go to jail. They generally don't. They are a protected species, and that is part of the offshore business model of the UK, is to say, we will protect you, we will bring your money here, we will look after you, we're not going to put you in prison, we'll let you do what you want. Light-touch regulation was one way of attracting business to London. Another was secrecy. From the 1960s onwards, City of London institutions began to establish offshore branches in former outposts of the British Empire. Their aim was to create offshore centres with strong secrecy legislation in order to attract capital from across the globe. Swiss banking secrecy is the most famous, the most well-known. You know, you put your money in a Swiss bank and they won't, they promise not to tell anybody. And that's one kind of secrecy. But another kind of secrecy, which is very British, is the trust. And the trust is a very um, slippery, complicated and devious mechanism. Trusts emerged, the legend has it, from the time of the Crusades when the knights would go off and fight in foreign lands and they would leave their assets in the care of trusted stewards. What trusts do ultimately is they play with the concept of ownership. Ownership is not such a simple thing. So the settlor, the knight in this case, would hand over the assets to someone who these days would be called a trustee. It's often a lawyer. Legally, you are separated from those assets. They're not yours anymore. There's a barrier. You can't be taxed on them. You can't be... Nobody's going to find anything about your connection to these assets. In Britain's offshore jurisdictions, 
No qualifications are necessary to be a trustee. Anyone can set up a trust and act as a trustee. There is no registry of trusts. There are no bodies to certify that a trust has been set up. The only persons who know about the creation of this agreement are the trustee and the settler. There's no obligation to register it. There is no financial reporting obligation of trusts. They're not required to put annual statements onto account anywhere. So actually trusts are, to all intents and purposes, invisible arrangements. We're not talking about a few million. We're talking now about trillions, trillions of dollars of capital, which apparently belong to nobody. For tax purposes and for other purposes, they belong to nobody. Everything, works of arts, gold bullion, horse racehorses, cars, real estate, not just financial assets, but a whole load of non-financial assets belong to these trusts, sitting there belonging to nobody. Now think that one through because we are talking about maybe as much as $50 trillion of assets sitting offshore behind these instruments. All right, guys, sorry for the long clip, but I just wanted you to get the entire picture and kind of understand why I wanted to do this show, because that's a lot of money, and what a system, what a racket that they've carved out for themselves, and who knows how long this has actually been going on from one degree to the next but I'm going to play a little more, and then we'll end the show. This is going to be talking about the more secretive jurisdictions and kind of show how the different jurisdictions kind of specialize in various things. And then we'll end the show. But I thank you for listening. I thank you for your patience. And let's go ahead and check this out, and then we'll get to the end. Every secrecy jurisdiction offers a specific set of services from trusts to shell companies to secret bank accounts and nominee directors. The combination of these services into complex structures spanning multiple jurisdictions enables the creation of secrecy structures that are almost impossible to penetrate. An offshore structure will often have a trust kind of sitting at the top of it. The trust will be here managing the assets, kind of controlling the assets. Underneath it, the trust will own some shell companies. Each one might be in a different jurisdiction. So you might have a trust in one jurisdiction whose trustees are somewhere else, whose beneficiaries are somewhere else, which owns offshore companies somewhere else. Each of these companies might then own assets. So that they might own you know, a bank account, a racehorse, a yacht, a painting, um, a portfolio of shares or whatever. There are numerous variations of trusts and offshore secrecy structures. There are offshore lawyers whose work entails the creation of ever more complex and obscure structures. The aim of these structures is to hide the identity of the owners of offshore assets and allow offshore wealth to be recycled back into global markets. The Panama Papers are a collection of leaks from the offshore law firm Mossack Fonseca. Mossack Fonseca is the fourth largest offshore law firm. The other nine of the ten largest offshore law firms are registered in British overseas jurisdictions. When countries complain to Britain about the activities run out of its offshore havens, Britain claims that these places are independent and that there is nothing it can do. I've heard time and time again from officials in Berlin and in Paris and in Washington and in other countries that they've been told by the British government that 
Yes, they're well aware of what's going on in Jersey and they think it's very unfortunate, but they don't have the powers to intervene. Well, that's a straightforward lie. They do have the powers to intervene. They just choose not to. All right, guys, that finishes up this episode of The Oddcast, and I thank you once again for checking it out. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did looking into it. Another classic conspiracy found to have a lot of truth in it, and one of these days we may look into the Vatican and the Washington, D.C. conspiracy as well. Supposedly, all three are connected, but you know, finding out secretive things about the Vatican is really hard, and also finding out if... Actually, Washington, D.C. works something like this London City Corporation is also pretty difficult to prove. So we'll leave that for another day. But I want to get right to thanking my patrons. And if you want to become a supporter of The Oddcast, just go to patreon.com forward slash The Odd Man Out. I've got three tiers there, so check them all out. Now, I want to get right to it. Thank you, Cole. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Crazy Breadman, for being a covert co-conspirator. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Ruckus. The Daily Ruckus. Check it out on Alternate Current Radio. Thank you, Ruckus, for being a producer of the show. We're going to get Ruckus on the Oddcast very soon. Thank you, No Evil Shall Fear. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Mark, from Tonic Live. Please check out Mark's content on YouTube and his other channels. Thank you, James. Thank you, Bill, for being a producer of the show. Thank you, Peterson. Thank you, John Brisson. Please check out John's We've Read the Documents page on Rumble and Subscribestar. Thank you to the Mighty Kilowatt. Thank you, Sir Tim of the Tunnels. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, David. And thank you, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. Check out Jack's content on YouTube and all your fine podcasting platforms. I was on Jack's show last week with John Brisson and Billy Ray Valentine from the Infinite Fringe. We had a great show, and hopefully that will come out soon, and I'll post it here on my Patreon. Thank you also to Fringe Radio Network for hosting the show, and thank you to my podcasting family, AlternateCurrentRadio.com. Check out all their talk and music shows, especially their flagship, The Boiler Room, as well as the aforementioned Daily Ruckus. I love you guys. I'll be talking to you very soon. i got all kinds of irons in the fire. And stay tuned soon for another odd cast where I interviewed the great Chris Graves. And I'll probably be doing a second part with Chris pretty soon on Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, the great Dave McGowan book. So be looking for that as well. Cheers and blessings, everyone. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys. Has the UK got a finance curse? Is it a trick question? Because the UK doesn't have finance. The city of London has, and it's not part of the UK. Good answer. (laughs) Good answer. It's international, is right. The city of London is outside the United Kingdom. Do you know that? It's it's really shocking. And therefore, it's also not part of the EU, which explains uh, the... It couldn't be part of the EU because you have to have democratic elections, and the city of London doesn't, right? It's, it's the banks that have the votes, right? Right.
per staff, you know, I the know, staff I never knew how, do you, how do you start yeah. unpicking this puzzle? I never knew that's a very useful piece of information. And of course, it's not <laughs> it's part of the... It's a pretty dangerous piece of information. <laughs> and it's not part of the UK because the Queen is not allowed to enter without permission. She's not the sovereign, therefore it's not part of the UK. It's, you know, and of course that's since, you know, 1688. Since the foreign invasion. <laughs> Voting. Yikes. It's a very paranoid time. The truth is much more complicated. What do you expect when the truth is so often kept from us by those in power? As if we could not handle the revelations. I have seen things that would make you shit your mind, Kimosabi.